inventors out there. This is Leslie Jane Seymour, and I am the founder of this podcast and also the founder of the Covey Club, where we talk about reinvention and where we say we hold a space for you while you figure out what's next. So come on over to Covey Club and check us out. We have articles. We have uh you know, all kinds of meetups, we have events, we have classes, everything to get you all set in your reinvention. So today I'm really excited to talk to somebody. I've been waiting a year to talk to her. She pushed, she published her book in 2020. Um, her book is called Time, Start, time Smart, How to Reclaim Your Time and Live a Happier Life by Harvard Business Publishing. And Ashley Willens, is an assistant professor in the negotiation organizations and markets unit teaching the motivation and incentives course to MBA students uh, at Harvard. In both 2015 and 2018, she was named a rising star of behavioral science by the International Behavioral Exchange and the Behavioral Science and Policy Association. And she has her book out and she really, as she'll explain, and you you need to listen to, um, she explains how it was her own life um, and her time issues that created such a, a problem in her own life that she decided she had to find solutions that she could share with all of us. And of course, she went to it from an academic research point of view. And she gives us fabulous tips I'm not going to tell you all of them here, but it's all about trying to figure out how to make yourself more flush with time. And she breaks it down into three areas, finding time, funding time, and refunding time. So I'm really, really excited to bring Ashley Willens to you. And you got to go grab her book, Time Smart, How to Reclaim Your Time and Live a Happier Life, because she's living a happier life now that she figured it out. Hi, Ashley. I can't believe it's, I think it's a year later that we're talking finally. Yes, it's so good to be here. I think COVID is, has definitely been a busy time, which I'm excited to talk to you a little bit more about today. Wonderful. And for your, for your business and for your book, that's a good thing. So let's talk a little bit first, since this is about reinvention, let's talk about your personal reinvention. As you say, I was a first year faculty member and my personal life was in shambles. I decided to put my knowledge on the science of time affluence to practice by writing the book, Time Smart, to walk the talk of time affluence. What is time affluence? And why did you pick that particular topic? Yeah, so time affluence is a feeling of having enough time to do all the things that you want to do and have to do. I think most of us, and my data suggests that most of us feel time poor, not time rich. So in large scale survey data that I've collected over the last handful of years, I found that 80% of working adults living all over the world report feeling time poor. Like they have too many things to do in a day and not enough time to do them. And I landed on this topic because I'm a happiness researcher. Ah, yeah. In graduate school, I spent a lot of time thinking about how people should spend their money. 
to be happier and found over and over again, people weren't very good at spending discretionary income in ways that promote happiness. We focus too much on material stuff, not enough on experiences. We don't give enough of our money away to charity, which is really good for happiness. And my advisor and I got to thinking if people have a challenge in time, spending money in ways that promote happiness, I'm sure that they're also not spending time in a way that promotes happiness. Yes. And so that led me down a productive path in my research life to understand how people navigate trade-offs between time and money, how they make decisions about leisure, and what gets in the way of becoming more time rich. You did allude to this already, but my impetus for writing my book, which isn't something that a lot of academics do, especially early on in their career, was my own challenge in putting my research into practice in my everyday life. So I was studying how people often gravitate toward making more money at the expense of having more time, how this can erode social relationships, undermine romantic relationships. And at the very same time that I was flying around the country giving academic talks about the importance of prioritizing time, I was not walking that talk. I was prioritizing money and my career, taking every and any opportunity that came my way. And ultimately my first marriage failed because of it. You know, I I could sit around and be angry at my ex for not following me to Boston, but at the end of the day, I realized there was nothing for him to be part of here because I was so focused on work. And so a lot of that introspection led me to think, well, if I'm an expert on the subject of time, affluence, and happiness, and I am struggling in my own personal life, this must be hard. So what what does the academic literature say about simple strategies that we can all take to become more time affluent? And how could I, in my own life, make time affluence a habit? I love it. So how do we reinvent our approach to time? And what are the things that you talk about in the book, which is called Time Smart, How to Reclaim Your Time and Live a Happier Life. How do we do that? Yeah, so I I talk about several different strategies we can take. And I will say that really cultivating time affluence, like becoming more physically fit, involves changing small decisions on an everyday basis and on a regular repeated basis. So there isn't a once and done solution to becoming more time affluent. It's something that involves interrogating your beliefs and your relationship with work. It involves spending 30 minutes, one hour differently each and every day and trying to disrupt your habits. So I really talk a lot about this in the book, but the power of small decisions on a regular basis. And I will let you know that I'm happily remarried with a young kid at home. Yeah. So I really do try to put these principles into practice in my own life. So I'm going to share a few strategies with you today that I talk about in the book. So I really break down the science of time affluence and happiness into three strategies. The first is, um, sorry, the first is finding time. The second is funding time. And the third is reframing time. So finding time, if we were to be talking today about financial literacy, we'd probably be looking at where we spend our discretionary income. Similarly, when we're thinking about becoming more time affluent, it's important to interrogate how you spend time on an everyday basis. I like to encourage clients to do a time audit where I ask them to think about a typical workday and ask themselves what episodes or activities they did in the morning, the afternoon, and in the evening. 
And then after they've recorded the primary activities that they did, I asked them how they felt during each of these activities. Was it an activity that made you happy, stressed out? Was it something that was meaningful or was it something that was unproductive or stressful? And you wanna be thinking about maximizing your personal U-index. This is just a labor econ way of minimizing the negative and maximizing the positive experiences on an everyday basis. You can also think about this as the Marie Kondo method of time. <laughs> um, and so you wanna look at how you spend time on an everyday basis and ask yourself, especially for things that are stressful and unproductive, what can you do to minimize those experiences in your life? Maybe that looks like outsourcing some of your dislike tasks to others, like hiring a house cleaner or ordering takeout or one of these food subscription services. Maybe that looks like saying no to opportunities that aren't meaningful and don't bring you joy. Or maybe that looks like delegating tasks to others, women and especially junior women, feel a lot of guilt and shame about delegating tasks to other people, yes. but try, try to reframe delegation as an opportunity for someone to learn a new skill. We often worry about burdening other people with the tasks on our plate, but that's the wrong way to approach delegation. Research shows that thinking about those tasks as a learning opportunity for someone else, because they genuinely are a lot of the time, can be one very tactical way to encourage ourselves to delegate more than we do. Um, another strategy within this bucket of trying to minimize the negative experiences that we have on an everyday basis is to ask for more time on adjustable deadlines at work. Again, women are much less comfortable asking for more time on adjustable deadlines, undermining their well-being, increasing burnout, Yet we overestimate how negative asking for more time is going to be perceived. If anything, managers, as long as you don't do it too often, see your asking for more time as a signal you care about quality as opposed to speed. Mm. Um, so that's really the first strategy is doing a time audit, asking yourself how you're spending your time on an everyday basis. And is it how you ideally would like to say you've lived your life? So this is hard, right? Mm. But the happiest people are those who live their days as if they, in sorry, are the ones that live their days in the way that they would ideally like to live their lives. So if you could write down what an ideal day looks like and then what your actual day looks like, you wanna think about closing the gap between reality and your ideal. The happiest people in surveys that researchers have conducted are people who live each day in an ideal way. Mm, sounds yummy. <laughs> yeah. And it involves interrogating a lot of your beliefs around work, right? So if you're sure spending more time working and not as much time socializing with friends and family, you have to show up and start to prioritize time at least to the same extent as you prioritize work and making money. I know this has been a major unlock for me. So mm -hmm. one thing I try to do to disrupt my habits is I don't work as the very first thing that I do when I get out of bed. In fact, the first couple of hours every morning are spent journaling, taking my daughter to the park, meditating, because I find for myself that when the first thing I do is go straight to work, that colors my entire day. All of a yeah. sudden, all I'm thinking about is money and work and productivity. Yeah. And I lose track of all the other important elements of my life that I care about, self-care, quality time with my friends and family. And so that's one way of thinking about these kind of time and money decisions too, is 
where are there key inflection points in your day where you can make prioritizing time a habit? Love it. All right, keep going. All right, so I also already briefly talked about this, but funding time. So you wanna find time, fun time, reframe time. Funding time is outsourcing dislike tasks to others. As little as $40, spending $40 on a time-saving purchase can have causal benefits for mood and reduce stress. You wanna be thinking about having conversations with your partner about outsourcing dislike tasks together. So putting this as something that you put your discretionary income against in your household and make these decisions together. Once you've decided to make time-saving purchases together in your household or on an individual basis, be really intentional about what you do with that additional free time. My data suggests that you're gonna get more bang for your happiness buck if you spend that time socializing, exercising, engaging in active leisure, spending quality time with your partner. What do I mean by quality time? In our data, it doesn't matter what activities you do, it matters how you feel while you're doing them. So quality time looks like spending time with someone that you care about, where you feel supported, you're in a positive mood, and you feel present in the moment. So that means turn off your phone when you're trying to spend quality time together with the people that you love, because digital distraction is one of the major causes of time poverty. And third, the strategy of reframing time. So sometimes we're going to go about our everyday lives and we're going to have to do things we don't want to do. We can't delegate them. We can't outsource them. Maybe we don't want to outsource them. Some of my colleagues say, I could hire a house cleaner, but I want my kid to know the value of hard work. That's totally fine. We all have different goals, values, and different reasons for doing different activities. But if you are confronted with an activity that you don't like, you can't get rid of, you don't want to outsource, you can think about reframing that activity. What does this look like? So one of my PhD students ran some clever studies during her dissertation where she asked people to engage in some pretty unpleasant data entry tasks, really manual, pretty boring. And she randomly assigned people to either think about the broad overarching purpose of those tasks or to simply think about the fact that those tasks help their colleagues get work done. She found that thinking about some of these mundane tasks as a way to help colleagues get their work done significantly reduced stress and improved performance, made people feel more positive about doing these otherwise dreaded tasks in the workplace. We often have to commute long distances to get to our place of employment. Commuting is coming back now that more of us are going to the office. And commuting can also be an unpleasant part of our day. One scientifically proven strategy to make commutes more positive is to use that time to intentionally set goals for the day. So instead of thinking of a, of a commute as that dreaded morning commute where you're stuck in traffic, try to reframe that activity as something where you're planning for the rest of your day, where you're setting yourself up for success that can reduce stress and reduce burnout. And finally, we wanna be thinking about reclaiming and reframing our leisure. So as I briefly alluded to, one of the major causes of time poverty is our constant connection to our technology. This has increased our time poverty during the COVID-19 pandemic. As we find ourselves with more meetings, we're sending more emails. A lot of this digital communication is now happening outside of regular office hours. This can create a lot of stress, especially during our leisure experiences. In one study, my colleagues collected um, conducted rather with working adults at a science museum, 
they randomly assigned working adults to one of two conditions. In one condition, working adults with their kids at a science museum were asked to turn the alerts on their phones off. In another condition, working adults were asked to turn the alerts on their phones on. When you have your alerts on your phone on, what they found is that this significantly undermined the enjoyment of the leisure experience. Parents reported feeling lonelier, like the experience was less meaningful. They remembered fewer details about the science museum. And this really created feelings of guilt because you're getting emails on your phone and you're thinking I'm a bad parent because I'm looking at my phone while I'm trying to enjoy a weekend with my kid. But maybe I'm also a bad colleague because now my colleagues are clearly working and I'm here on the weekend enjoying some time with my family. So this really speaks to the importance of turning off your constant connection to work via turning off your phone while trying to enjoy leisure. What's one way that you can do that? So my colleagues have some research showing that simply reframing an upcoming weekend like a vacation can help you enjoy it more. So they ask people to think, simply think about an upcoming weekend like a vacation. Wow. And they found that when people did, they felt less stressed. They felt more present in the moment it, the, and they were happier as a result. The happiness benefits weren't just driven by or weren't driven at all, rather, by people spending more money or not cleaning. Time use didn't differ between people who just thought about a weekend like a weekend or thought about a weekend like a vacation. This vacation mindset put people more in the present moment. They were less distracted by their technology. They were more trying to savor every moment of their leisure. And I think that's a really important way to reframe our leisure as something that is positive in and of itself as something that we can truly enjoy um, and, and try to get the most of. How do we, in this technology, the, I mean, the technology is just killing us. I don't think anybody thought that's what was gonna happen, but it's invading our lives so that there's no distinction between working and non-working. You're always on. I know especially that the millennials feel assaulted by this. They never, you know, in the olden days, I would come home. I would come home. There was no way for my, you know, office to find me or connect me. They could call me, but I might not be there, right? And I actually had a separated life. I, I was not always on call. And um, I mean, how do we go back to separating that? Because you don't, you never get the sense of being refreshed if you are always on call. I mean, it's like being a doctor, right? Today, and it's for stupid stuff, you know? Where is this? Where is that? Why didn't someone, you know? And these are not emergency things that couldn't wait until tomorrow. And it's the way that our business life has overwhelmed our private life. Oh, I love I love these points so much. So something I also talk about in my research is the idea of the mere urgency effect. So one of the causes of time poverty is that especially when we're feeling overwhelmed by the demands of work and life, and let's be real, who isn't, we gravitate towards tasks that are urgent, but not important. So this explains why your inbox goes near zero when you're working under a major project deadline. And it relates to this conversation and this point that you're making about our constant connection to technology. When we feel stressed out, we send 500 emails to different people on our teams, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, regardless of what time of day it is. And even if it's not truly important, but it feels important because we're making it urgent. So we need to 
break this mere urgency effect in organizations. And this has happened a lot since the COVID-19 pandemic. So again, something else I talk about in my book is related to the ideal worker norms. So as work has become more abstract and it's harder to determine objectively high quality productivity, given that we are working more in knowledge work and there's less objective criteria for our performance, we use constant responsivity as a proxy for commitment. And workers worry that if they don't respond instantaneously, they will seem less committed. And this is especially true during COVID and now in hybrid work models where we're distributed, we're not in the same office. And so it's much harder to show you, you care because you're in the office. And, and so people now feel an intense pressure to instantaneously respond. We've uh -huh. been working management consulting firms to try to break habits around constant responsivity because they are interruptions that get in the way of high quality work. There is a lot of research yes. showing simply having your phone out on the desk produces the cognitive bandwidth costs of only having slept three to five hours the night before. So your performance wow. suffers because of this constant interruption. We made busy executives put proactive blocks of time in their calendar for two to three hours a day where they were asked not to be on email, not to check texts, that to tell their teams they were only going to be responsive if something was truly an emergency by phone, which you also said. And we found that the simple intervention of finding two to three hours each day where you turned off the alerts on your phone and you did your hard work that we all have to do on a regular basis reduced burnout by almost 20%, increased self-perceived productivity by about the same amount, and most importantly, client satisfaction went up, not down. We often get this pushback on the idea of set team norms for when you can communicate with each other. Be very clear about the fact that your team should all have a digital communication break between 12 to 1, 5 to 7. We don't need to be communicating at, at at those hours, unless it's truly an emergency and then we can call. We often get pushback on this idea, but clients need us to be constantly responsive. And our data shows client satisfaction goes up when you're not constantly responsive, when you're really doing high quality work for your clients. You don't need to be constantly responsive to them. And plus clients are people too. They're also dealing with an inbox that's completely full and unmanageable. And the faster you respond, the more stress you're putting on your clients to respond instantaneously. And that can undermine the relationship as opposed to improve it. So we've been really advocating for clear norms around communication and guardrails. We have one team experimenting right now that we're working with at a top three management consulting firm. And they've internalize this idea as a curfew. So now they have a Ooh. digital communication curfew. Oh, I like yeah. that. Yeah, where they're not supposed to email or Slack and they only call if it's urgent and the team feels great because they're getting their work done. They're of course working past six. They're in a top three management consulting firm. They're working a lot of hours, but now they don't have to be responsive. They can focus on the most important tasks at hand and deal with all of the urgent but not important distractions later. Wow, that's amazing. And they're, they're finding that that really improves productivity. Mm -hmm. That makes more, that makes so much sense. I mean, I turned off as part of my year of research, just trying to read everything I could. I turned off all my notifications except for, you know, emergency ones. And that's it during the day. I don't get any anymore. 
and boy, has my life opened up. And like you, now I dedicate my mornings. I started this in January. I don't turn on the TV. I get up, I'll listen to the news through my Google pod um, while I'm making the bed and that's it. And then I'm off to doing, you know, my meditation and the things I have to do instead of what the world wants me to do. And boy, has that made a huge difference. Yeah, I love that. Setting the day with you being proactive about your goals and in, intentional around how you're spending your time, especially in those sort of first few hours upon waking, I think is so important for setting the cadence for the rest of the day. So we don't get pulled by the, the million different things that are trying to steal our attention and our intentionality from, from us. And if you're an, a morning person, <clears throat> the worst thing you can do is turn on your email and start being reactive because the reactive doesn't get you your stuff done. <laughs> it gets everybody else's stuff done, not what you have to do today. Yeah, right? I think this is a really important point, I, especially for women. I think it's pretty difficult. Like we feel bad, right? We feel like we're being a bad colleague if we're not being instantaneously responsive. Yes. And I think that's a habit that at least for myself and my colleagues that I work with, but I've been really advocating to try to break. It's actually, you know, it's, it's pro-social in some ways to do your th own work first, because then you can show up in your relationships with your colleagues, less distracted and more present because you know, you've done what you need to do, what you care about then you can be more generous with your energy, you're less likely to multitask, and you can be more present with those around you. So we have to flip the framing of not being constantly responsive is actually pro-social. It's not something that's selfish. I like the use of the word pro-social. I think that's very positive, and I think that's a great way to go in that direction. And what else did you learn that is important to, did you segment out women 40 plus by any chance in any way, or do you, did you find any pointers for young versus old that were different? Yeah, so I've seen a little bit in my data that older individuals in general are better at prioritizing time and better at prioritizing meaning. But one thing I've also seen in some of my data is that older adults struggle a little bit to change their habits around work and meaningful pursuits outside of work. So I often get people kind of 35, 40 in my talks, reading my book and saying, I've built a really successful career. Now I'm trying to off-ramp my career slowly over time. And I need meaningful pursuits outside of work, where should I start? <laughs> um, and I think this goes back to the beginning of our conversation around thinking about passion, thinking about hobbies as a habit. So I sometimes have colleague conversations with colleagues who say things like, well, my, my oldest child just went to college and now we're empty nesters. And I thought that I would have all this free time. I'd finally pick up cooking. I'd finally start reading beyond my topic area. I'm usually talking to researchers. And yet what I found is that I've simply expanded work to fill the additional time that I can give it. 
right. And I think this speaks to something that's really important that I'm starting to explore in my research now is around cultivating habits around leisure. So I think it's really important to set ourselves up for success as we scale back our careers, if we, as we think about retirement, to focus on hobbies, nonprofits, in engagements outside of the workplace that might provide a sense of meaning and purpose, because it's going to take us a while to find activities that we're really excited about, where we get good enough at it, that we feel um, that it could be a meaningful part of our lives. I think we sort of expect that passion outside of work will happen really easily and naturally once we go looking for it. But it honestly takes people a few different hobbies to find something that really sticks. And so I think trying to embed leisure and hobbies into your life as soon as you can, even if it's just a few hours a week, will set yourself up for a meaningful and rewarding retirement. And these are topics that my colleagues and I are starting to explore now. Yeah, that's good because that's exactly what Covey does. We take people in who don't want to just retire from the world who still want to be involved. Maybe they don't want to do what they were doing. Maybe they want to do something totally different, but they still want to contribute. And it's really more than hobbies. They want to be involved. They want to figure out what is next for them. And maybe it's just scaling back the way you do it. You know, maybe you're not in the office every day. Maybe you're doing it remotely, or maybe you're taking what you do and becoming a consultant or, and I, I, I agree with you that it's helpful if people don't wait until they're at the very end of their classic working life to figure out what else is out there for them, that it's best to double time it while you're, while you're still working and in whatever you are doing, that's, you know, getting you to, to the end of your main money-making career, but you should have other things at the same time. Otherwise, it's very hard to just suddenly stop at the top of the escalator and say, now where, which way do I go? And I think it's also really helpful for people, regardless of where they are in their careers. So my colleague, Jan Yakomovitz in the organizational behavior department here shows that people have passions outside of work, have an easier time disengaging from work. They come back to their jobs more refreshed. They're more creative. Yes. Yes. And I think so. I think this conversation and this idea of cultivating pursuits and passions outside of our our money making careers, if you will, is really important um, throughout our entire career trajectory. Yeah. And I think I think what we've learned over time and no one taught us, especially as women entering the workplace when we did, is that it's you should never put all your eggs in one basket. I mean, it's just like the one guy. It's like the one partner can't be everything to you. The one job can't be everything to you. And you need to be more developed than that. You need to have other interests and pursuits and involvements. But a lot of people, I guess, because it's overwhelming and it's exhausting, a lot of people don't do that. And I think this goes back to something I, I often underscore in my research is I think a lot of my, us, myself included, have this very like all or nothing mentality yes. when it comes to work and everything in life, right? If I can't yes. be the best swimmer, why swim? If I can't be right. the best at my job, like what's the point? So I have to be the best. 
And my research shows that even people who spend like 10 minutes a day exercising are so much happier than people who don't. <laughs> so yes. it's where we can find that 10 minutes, that 30 minutes to engage in things that we care about, even if we don't have three hours to commit to them. And I yes. think that's something that I really push myself on because I often see, and even in my own experience, see that I don't engage in behaviors like exercising if I feel like I need to have three hours to do it. But if I feel like I can, you know, do a hundred jumping jacks in between meetings, and maybe that's the only exercise I get for the day, it's better than nothing. That's I right. Think, I think trying to deconstruct this all or nothing thinking, well, is really important for cultivating a full life. Yes, I agree. Ashley, amazing. Where can everybody reach you? Obviously, they can find your book on Amazon and I assume in other bookstores, correct? Yes. Yep. And um, my faculty website, Ashley Willens, if you Google my name, my faculty website will come up with a lot of my academic publications and HBRs. And feel free to reach out to me directly if you have any thoughts about any of our conversation. Super. And do you have, uh, are you on social media or did professors stay off of? No, I am media? on social media. I have okay. a LinkedIn account. I have Twitter. I think I'm so they can, on LinkedIn. Yeah. Okay. LinkedIn's probably the best place to find you. And they could say that um, they had heard you on the Covey Club content, uh, uh, prod, podcast. Perfect. Wonderful. Ashley, thank you so much for your time. And um, i I love the topic and I love the information and thank you for just being so proactive and giving us so many tricks for actually getting out of this time problem that technology has created. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you all for listening to this podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. And if you did, I hope you'll subscribe. And I also hope that you'll share those podcasts with anybody you know who's trying to reinvent themselves. Reinvention is possible, but it is hard and it's terrible to do on your own. So I highly suggest you mosey on over to thecubbyclub.com and check out all the great things we have there for you from articles to actual classes to women you can meet who are all doing the same thing. They are all trying to think about what is next. And how am I going to handle that? And as we say at Covey Club, this is our expertise. We hold the space for you while you figure out what's next. And that's super powerful. And it happens. It works. I have the testimonies. So come on over. Do not feel stuck. Do not feel like you're drifting. Do not wait until somebody gives you a pink slip to figure out what's next, because you should be working on that well before that so that you're in charge, you drive the train, you decide when you're going to change and you're going to do something else. So wonderful to talk to you and we will see you next time.